uh, Luke chapter 2, we're starting at verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what, had, what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God, and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Uh, Well, friends, as we come to really slow down a bit and think about what God has said to us through his word, how about I pray and just ask God to help us focus and hear. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you speak to us clearly in your word, telling us about your son, Jesus, that we may trust in him and be saved for all eternity. As we come to this wonderful passage tonight, please help us to understand him more deeply and so be more assured of the wonderful salvation he offers to all who trust in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, friends, as you know, we've been going through this series called The Coming of the Christ and we've been looking at how the whole Bible points to Jesus from, from Genesis to Revelation, from old creation through to new creation Uh, And tonight's kind of the good night. Tonight's the night where he arrives. We've been waiting for this time for, look, it's been weeks for us. It was centuries and millennia for his other people, but weeks is long enough. And tonight's the night where we see the Christ is born. It's a great night of celebration, a great time. And if you've got to hand out a bulletin there, you'll see where we're going tonight. First of all, we're going to see how the coming of the Christ fulfills God's promises to Israel and to the whole world. 
through his death and resurrection. But then in the second section, we're going to ask the obvious question. We're going to say, why doesn't it seem like God's promises are fulfilled? If you look around the world, it's pretty easy to say, I thought there was meant to be peace. There's, there's not as much peace as I thought there would be. I thought the lion would lie down peacefully next to the lamb. These sorts of things God promised. And so we're going to look at that kind of development uh, in that second section. But let's start with that first part, the coming of the Christ and the consolation of Israel. Uh, and one of the first things that today's reading really emphasizes that you might have picked up there is that when Jesus came, he didn't just come as a human being, did he? He came as an Israelite, as a Jewish person. It was there in verse 21. It was on the eighth day they brought their son to be circumcised. That's what God told Abraham to do and to have his descendants do. So we've got Abraham tickling away there in the background. But then the law of Moses is repeated three times from verse 22. Look there in verse 22. It says, When the time for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, there it is, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, repeated second time, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord three times. Can you see that repetition? Why does he emphasize so many times the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord? What's the point? The point is that when Jesus was born, he came in this line of promise. He came in this line. He's not just some Tom, Dick or Harry, but he came to pick up the promises to Abraham, the promises to David, and the promises through Moses as well. This is a critical point to make. In fact, this is such an important thing. We might kind of think of it and go, eh, does, it, does it really matter? It is so important that the whole New Testament starts with this very point. Just keep your finger there in the Bible in Luke chapter 2 and flick back to Matthew chapter 1 on page 1467 if you're in the Pew Bible. Back to Matthew chapter 1, the start of the New Testament. And can someone give me a thumbs up when you're there? Just so I know. I've got a thumb. All right. Look there at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very start of it all. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, or Christ, God's anointed king, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's where it all begins. And in fact, if you look down below, there's the big list of names, the genealogy that carries down over the page. It's broken into three big sections. And each section starts with a big name. Verse 2, it's Abraham. Verse 6, it's David. Verse 12, it's not a name but the exile, another major uh, heading before we get to the Messiah. It's almost like when the New Testament starts and says, do you want to know about Jesus? It says, here's what you've got to know. He's pulling together some big threads in the Old Testament. All that God promised to Abraham lands on Jesus' shoulders. All that God promised to David and his son who would reign forever lands on Jesus. And all the, the hopes uh, around the exile and coming back from exile, they land on Jesus. These threads of the Old Testament are woven together perfectly in Christ. It's kind of like a plait. I don't know if you wear a plait in your hair. It's probably not the hairstyle I wear most days. Um, but... Many days I, I do a plait. My girls come to me before school and they say, Dad, can, can you plait our hair? Um, which usually means my wife's busy because they know that she does better plaits than I do. But nevertheless, they come to me. Uh, and so I've learned how to do a plait. 
And so you weave the hair together, try not to make a knot, because that's not good apparently. You do a plait. And the last step to a plait is, what do you do the last step? You tie it off. Exactly. Otherwise, the plait's gone, the kids are cranky, and that's not good for anyone. It's the same with the Old Testament. Through the Old Testament, God is weaving Abraham, David, exile, all these threads, Moses, weaving them together, and then he ties them off in the New Testament with Jesus Christ. He's the one who holds them all together. And so when Jesus comes, he doesn't just come as a human being, though he is. He comes as an Israelite to pick up all of God's promises to his people beforehand. And this brings us to that consolation of Israel phrase. Did you see that in verse 25? Look in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Spirit was on him. Isn't that an interesting phrase, consolation of Israel? What does that mean? If you just pause, I kind of skip over this stuff normally when I'm reading the Bible. You're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what does it mean? The consolation, the comforting of Israel? What is this pointing to? Well, it's actually pointing us back to the end of exile. There was a prophet, Isaiah, whom you know, uh, who spoke about the end of exile. And Isaiah said in chapter 40, uh, comfort, comfort my people. Your time of judgment is over. The people were exiled. They were taken off. We saw last week when Arthur was preaching. They were taken off to Babylon because they kept breaking God's law. They didn't follow God. So as God promised, he took them off to exile. But he told them about it as well. And they said, there will be a day when you come back. Comfort my people. Consolation for Israel. We saw last week that there was a a physical end of exile. Under the Persian Empire, the, the Israelites were brought back into their promised land, back into their space to rebuild the temple, and yet they never truly came back. When they were back, they were always subject to other rulers like the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And in fact, their true exile, their true alienation from God hadn't been dealt with. Their hearts were still sinful. They still wandered from God. They were in need of a more powerful consolation than history had shown them. Or if you jump down to verse 38, there's a different phrase used for the prophetess Anna. That was Simeon, the prophet. Now we shift to Anna. And Anna in verse 38 is speaking to everyone about this child. And she's speaking to those who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. If consolation picks up the exile and a return from exile, redemption picks up the time when God freed his people from slavery. It points us back to slavery in the book of Exodus. Do you remember this is a few weeks ago now for us? Under Pharaoh, God's people were slaves, but God rescued them through the Exodus, all those signs, all those things, and yet they remained slaves to their sin. And so here in Luke 2, this this wonderful Christmas passage about the baby born, are these two massive anchors that go back into the Old Testament, reach back to the exile, even further back to the time when God pulled his people out of slavery in Egypt. And they're there to tell us these are being woven together. Christ is the one who has come to bring the deeper spiritual return to God. Can you imagine being Simeon or Anna there, waiting your lifetime? Lord, when will it come? When will suffering be over? When will comfort arrive? When will we truly be free? Then looking down and seeing Christ and by the Spirit realizing He's come. 
he's arrived. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? But Christ didn't just come for Israel, did he? Christ came to be a light for the world. If you've been here for the the whole series, you will have seen time and time again that when God makes promises to people, uh, he makes promises to them for the good of others as well. And so think back to Genesis 12 when God appeared to Abraham. He said to Abraham, through you, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. He's got that concern for all peoples of the earth. Or in the Psalms, we read this about uh, King David's son. It says, the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion, that's uh, Jerusalem, and his praise in Jerusalem, when, not the residents of Jerusalem only, but when the peoples and when the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. God's promises to David about kingship will concern the entire world. Or taking the prophet Isaiah, whom we've just been looking at. Speaking of the end of exile, he says, from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, All mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God's Messiah would come from Israel, for Israel, for the world. His concern was always all of mankind. And this is what Simeon picks up in verse 29. Look there in verse 29. Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. God had promised Simeon that he wouldn't die until he'd seen the Messiah. Verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, not just the Jews, to the Gentiles as well, and the glory of your people Israel. That's the trajectory and witness of the Old Testament. Blessings through God's people, through their Messiah, to the ends of the earth. All sounds pretty good so far. I'd I'd be hearing that and thinking, oh, this is nice. But it takes a sharp turn as well. It takes a sharp turn. Imagine for a minute that you're Mary or Joseph. So you're one of the the proud new parents. You've got this wonderful baby. Uh, You've brought him here to the temple. And uh, Simeon and Anna kind of looking on, saying all these wonderful things. Wouldn't you be a bit bit chuffed? Get proud as a parent? I get proud as a parent. Um, My girl's got a certificate in the last week. Um, they got a certificate for attending school. Um, <laughs> the bar has come down a fair bit. They, they were rewarded for not wagging school. And, you know, it's ridiculous. But as a parent, I was like, yes, that's my girl going to school. Can you imagine being Mary or Joseph? This is the glory of Israel, they say. Whew. A light. To the Gentiles, can you imagine them there just feeling proud as punch, grinning away? Then they get slammed with verse 34. Look at 34 and the change in tone. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Can you see that change? You see, this baby, his his future is full of glory, full of light, full of salvation. But it's not full of ease. It's not full of comfort and it's not full of peace. It kind of shifts from parents at a, uh, a school presentation to parents at a military graduation. Their child's going to do big things. He'll comfort many. But he'll do so through suffering, through being the focal point of opposition, hatred, And violence. 
And mother, mother Mary there, says that she'll feel like she's stabbed in her soul by a sword. Can you imagine saying that to a new mother? This shift in tone is stark. But it's no mistake, is it? We've been seeing through the whole Old Testament that God was planning to do something big. He was planning to bring a Messiah that through his suffering would console Israel. Through his suffering would be a light to the nations. The suffering of the Messiah is no plan B. It is the very elastic that holds the whole Old Testament plat together. This is actually where we started the series, isn't it? This is what Jesus told his disciples. This is how he opened their minds to understand the scripture. After Jesus' resurrection, he opened their minds, his followers' minds, so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written in the Old Testament. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That was the plan all along. That's what Jesus tells us too after his death and resurrection. You see, no true consolation could be given to Israel while their sin remained. As they continued to sin against God. And so Jesus came as the true Israelite as the king who would represent his people to live under the law and to take the curse of the law upon himself on the cross. He represented his whole nation so that every Israelite, every Jew who comes to him as king is covered. Their sins taken away. Peace with God forever. But it wasn't just for Israel. Forgiveness of sins is now preached in his name to all nations. It's such a wonderful thing that he's come to do. It's, it's so good. He's come as a Jew for the world. He also has come as the second Adam, hasn't he? Were you here for the first week when we looked at creation and Adam? When Adam sinned against God, he was the representative head of all humanity. He plunged us all into sin. But Christ has come as the second Adam to represent all who come to him. He is the seed of Eve who crushed Satan's head, rescuing us from the curse. And it's so good. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day his promises have been fulfilled. John writes in his gospel, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Look at the present tense there. It's no mistake. Has eternal life today. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. That points to the future coming judgment. But it's a wonderful thing today. Eternal life is yours if you trust in the Lord Jesus. Right now, we are free from God's wrath, back in his presence, blessed with eternal life. It's wonderful. But then we hit a snag. We always hit a snag. There's too many snags around. We have eternal life now. Jesus fulfilled God's promises. But this is section two. It doesn't always look like that, does it? If you look around the world, you can kind of think, well, it doesn't look like God has fulfilled his promises. If you're at school, at recess, sitting around with your mates, and you said to them, hey, guess what, friends? I'm enjoying eternal life right now. What would they say? They'd say, you're a bit crazy, mate. Is this really eternal life? Is this it at recess? Maybe if you had a good recess, like, I don't know, what's a good... Actually, we need a a bit of a wake-up. Turn to your neighbor. Here's 22nd question. What was the best thing you ever got for recess at school? Turn to your neighbor, chat, and I'll draw you back.
All right, that's long enough. That's long enough. Bring her back together, people. Bring her back. How did we go? Is anyone happy to shout out what their best recess was or their neighbours? An orange. There you go. That was the good day when you got the orange. Yeah. Anyone else? Homemade biscuits are made with love. They taste better. Um, I was asking some other guys as well. One of them said a carrot I heard during the week was, was the peak. And I think another one said a can of rice. I wasn't quite sure. I thought, what's happened? Where, where are the chips and the Mars bars? <laughs> Is this really the fulfillment of God's promises? Are we enjoying the eternal life that he said we would have? Why does it look so different? This is actually the question that Jesus' followers asked him too. After Jesus died and rose again, he was with his disciples, opening their mind to understand the scriptures. And they turned to him at one point in the start of the book of Acts and they say this. They say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Can you see the question? Lord, we we know our Old Testament. They They were Jewish people. They would have grown up with it. Isn't this the time where you overthrow the Romans? And restore us to power and heal my sickness and prosper my vine and all these sorts of things that God had promised to do? Well, great question. And this brings us to the next section, the comings of the Christ. You see, God has a timeline. He has a plan that he's been unfolding from the very start, from creation. And as he unfolds each kind of chapter of the story, something he does is add another layer. He gives us a bit more insight to know what's going on. And one of the things that uh, Jesus is kind of teaching his followers is that the timeline isn't quite as short as they thought it would be. This brings us to the heading called prophetic perspective in your handouts. Have you got a, hopefully you've got a diagram in your handouts. Prophetic perspective. Let's just pause for a second and think about what the Old Testament prophets were looking at. You see, in the Old Testament, the prophets were looking forward in time to a day when God would bring salvation and judgment and set everything right. And it was called the day of the Lord. It was kind of this instant when God would be done with all the suffering and sickness and everything would be good. That was the day. Like a mountain, it filled up their whole horizon. It's all they could see. Such was the glory of that day. But what they didn't realize then and what God has unpacked for them later is that this day of the Lord wasn't a single mountain. It was more like a mountain range. So from their perspective, they're looking forward to a mountain. That's not a mountain, that's a triangle. There we go, that's the mountain. They're looking forward to this day of the Lord, not realizing that, hang on a sec, oh, there we go, there's a bigger mountain behind it. And as Jesus comes and speaks to his followers, he kind of reveals that that first mountain was his first coming, when he would come to die to take away our sins. To rise again to give us new life. That is the decisive work of salvation that Christ accomplishes, securing our salvation. The second mountain is Jesus' second coming. Arthur's going to speak more on this uh, next week. But the second coming is when Christ returns for final judgment, to bring an end to uh, this creation, when God's promises will be fully experienced in all that they are. It's when this old creation that we're living in will come to an end. Big finish. Death will be done, disease will be done, flood, famine, they will be done away with forever. And Jesus will bring about the new creation. 
full of the life, blessing and prosperity that we look forward to. But here's the point. Where do we fit? Where do you fit on this timeline? Where do you live today? We're in there. That's all of Jesus' followers now between his first coming and his second coming. We're in the valley. And something I haven't put on this diagram yet is almost like Jesus coming 1.5. I wasn't sure what to call this one. You see, Jesus said to his followers just before he left that I'll come to you. Don't worry, I'm going, but I'll send you a helper. I'll send you my spirit. The Father and I will come and make our home in you. So it's kind of a coming of the Christ 1.5, maybe. If there's a first and second, call it something like that. And this is really how Jesus answered his disciples' question about time. When they asked him, Lord, are you at this time today, right now, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. So God has stretched out his timeline. He sent the day of salvation. His son has come and died on the cross so that people could be saved today. And yet he's delayed the final judgment. He's put it off because he wants people to be saved. Where would you be? If salvation happened back then, what would happen to all those other people who hadn't yet heard of Christ? God wants his salvation to be spread so that more people could come to know him. So he delays the final judgment and he gives us this valley to live in between the first and second coming. And he gives us his spirit to be with us. To what end? That we may preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. He wants more people to be saved, so he sends his spirit to help us spread the gospel. And there's more to it as well. I don't know if you noticed the, the problem with the diagram in your handouts. Do you want to play, play a quick kids game called Spot the Difference? In your handout, on the screen, what's the difference? Who can see what's wrong? Can anyone pick it? A lack of overlap. That's right, that's right. Um, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, there's this wonderful thing he does. The Holy Spirit grabs some of those blessings of the new creation and he pulls them back into our lives today. So the person who is uh, following Jesus, trusting in him, is called a new creation today. The Holy Spirit uh, gives them rebirth into God's living hope. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts, makes us alive to God, today as john said whoever believes in the son has present tense eternal life and this is eternal life to know the father eternal life isn't just about life that goes on forever it's a change in the quality of life a life with god the eternal and it will go on forever as well but this brings us back to our final heading living as new creations in the old creation what does it mean then if we live in that overlap, that's a helpful picture. We live in that tension, don't we? Almost a foot in two worlds. We're in the old creation. We are old creations. But by the Spirit, we're new creations as well. How do you straddle that? What does it mean for life that we live in this overlap of the ages? Well, one example we've already seen, already alluded to, is that God is with us now. 
We now know God is our Father. He delights in you. He loves to hear your prayers. And he is growing and changing you each day to be like his son. That's something he's doing today. Or in regards to sin, there's a work he's doing as well. There are three kind of categories when it comes to sin that might be helpful to think about. There's the penalty of sin. There's the power of sin. And there's the presence of sin. The penalty of sin today is gone if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The penalty and the curse is gone. He took that away on the cross. The power of sin is also gone. We are no longer uh, living with our backs towards God, unable to please him. But by the Spirit, we live with our face towards God, able to please our Father in heaven. We are new creations today. The penalty is gone. The power of sin is gone. But the presence of sin isn't. It's still part of the old creation that we live in. We still have sin in our members. This is critical. If you're a Christian trying to do away with sin, you must recognize it will not be gone until Christ returns. Some people have have preached a sinless perfection and said, no, you can attain it. And it is crushing for the Christian who keeps going back to sin. But Jesus didn't promise that. Jesus said there's a future day coming. In the meantime, we follow him, we repent, But he stands as our advocate every time we sin to guarantee our forgiveness. What a relief it will be when our sin is finally gone. What about work, when you come to work? Living and working as a new creation in the old creation, how do you straddle that divide? Well, one thing I found when I became a Christian, my my attitude, my motivation for work changed. Um, My work became something I used to help people. To serve people, it doesn't matter in a sense what job you do. You do it under the Lord to serve others. But that doesn't guarantee that my work will always produce good fruit, does it? I mean, I was still working in the old creation. Still working in this world with its thorns and thistles from Genesis 3 uh, under God's curse. And so you may work as the most, uh, with the most integrity, uh, with the most faith you could imagine... That's no guarantee you won't go bankrupt tomorrow. We're still in the old creation. You may be the most uh, faithful member of a friendship and still be wronged tomorrow. You may pray 10 times a day and still die from a disease tomorrow. These things are no guarantee that bad things won't happen. Just think about Jesus. He lived a life of perfect integrity, didn't he? He followed the Lord all the time. He, He preached and prayed his way through his short life. And what happened? He got crucified. That's what the old world does. It is opposed to God. He was nailed to a cross. And as long as we continue to live in this old creation, until the new creation fully comes at Christ's second return, second coming, uh, we will be uh, suffering and living in this tension. It's part of life here under God's curse. And this is really what Jesus' first disciples needed to hear as well. They wanted to see the kingdom returned to Israel. Are you now, at this stage, going to return the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to give us the national peace that you promised us? They needed to hear God's timeline, that there is a day coming, that the land that they enjoyed was really a pointer to the new creation. It was a pointer to the bigger promises that are coming when Christ returns. As Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 makes clear, everyone who trusts in the Lord has entered his rest, has entered his land. That's what the promised land was pointing forward to. Jesus told his disciples, my kingdom is not 
of this world. His concern wasn't to say to them, yes, now is when I'll throw off the Romans. No, there are much bigger things Jesus is doing. He wants to see forgiveness preached to the ends of the earth in his name, that many more can share in the new creation. That's his focus and that's his work. And you kind of, as you keep reading through the New Testament, you kind of move through the Gospels into Acts and into the the letters and those sorts of things. You see the disciples start to get a bit clearer on this and realize, hang on, the real hope isn't restoring the kingdom to Israel today. The real hope is the resurrection that we attain to when Christ returns. It's almost like this. Here's a, here's a timeline illustration for you. Um, a few weeks ago, we had some friends from school come over, uh, bring the kids over for a play date with our kids and just hang out. Uh, and we we're chatting to them about Christmas. Are they, do they, are they looking forward to Christmas? What's Christmas for them? Uh, and they said as a family, they love Christmas. It's, it's one of the high points of the year. Uh, in fact, they love it so much that on November 30, they set up their tree. They wanted to be ready for December 1st to have the tree up ready. Uh, and they thought, we'll make a celebration out of this. We'll invite over the grandparents. We'll invite some cousins. We'll put on some food. Uh, and halfway through the afternoon, as they're doing the tree and the food and the celebrating, uh, their son runs up to them. He's in year one. Uh, he runs up to his mum and says, Mum, this is the best Christmas day ever. <laughs> he was blown away. He thought this was it. And she had a chuckle and said, sorry, this isn't Christmas Day. Um, It's wonderful you can celebrate today, but just wait until the real deal arrives. That's our life now. We've got God's promises fulfilled by Jesus, his spirit in us today. But there is a day coming where we'll get to taste it all the more. How about we wrap up by praying to God and asking him to help us wait for that day? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the clarity with which you speak to us in the Bible. We thank you that you tell us about Jesus' death on the cross for us, that we too could be forgiven, spared, and receive eternal life now as your children by your Spirit. Father, we're so thankful for the present blessings you've given us, but we're also mindful that we always, or we we can tend to focus on this world. Help us, Lord, to lift our eyes to the return of Christ, to share the gospel that others might share in these blessings too. We pray you'd help us to do this rejoicing, knowing you as our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.